welcome to A Court of Three Strands, the Palatine Institute's podcast on creating Christian culture. Through this show, we hope to provide a resource of education and encouragement for students, parents, and leaders about the revival of Christian values in our community. On A Court of Three Strands, we'll focus on the three foundational strands that make a strong, flourishing Christian culture, the church, the family, and education. We desire to order these things around God's word to advance Christ's kingdom and so glorify him and bless our community. My name is Ron Young, former headmaster at Providence Academy and founder of the Palatine Institute. And I'm Allison Tuttle, a wife and mother and the director of the Palatine Institute. Through our conversations, we look forward to sharing fellowship, knowledge, and practical wisdom for his glory here on A Court of Three Strands podcast. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to A Quarter Three Strands. I am here with a special guest. Uh, Allison, my co-host, is not here. Instead, we have David Goodwin. He is the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. And my work with Providence Academy, Valor Classical uh, Christian Academy, um, we're ACCS schools, so we're thrilled to have David here. Uh, he's also co-author with a New York Times bestseller, uh, Battle for the American Mind. It was number one on the best-selling list for four weeks and on the list all summer, right? 14 weeks? Last summer, yeah. Last summer. So, excellent. Welcome, David. Thanks for coming. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. And and when I say he's here, he's like here in studio with me. Um, David's out here to speak at the Ray Kern Memorial symposium at Providence Academy and uh, so grateful that he was able to come out and gracious stuff to give me some time to to chat so oh it's actually it's my honor it's oh well well there you go so the battle for American mind is um it is a wonderful book it has been I will say it's been a great tool for myself for our school to be able to hand to people interested in classical education or they have no idea why we would send our kids to a classical Christian school instead of a public school. And um, those discussions can get very long and heated. And it's really nice when you can just hand them a New York Times bestseller. Hey, Jeff. Well, that's gratifying because that's why we wrote it. As you know, there are a lot of great minds in our movement, and I'm not one of them, but I do understand what they're saying a lot of times, and I can translate for the regular guys. So there you go. That was the goal of it. Pete is also um, great at that. He's very good at uh, making things very accessible and yes. interesting, and the book flows that way. Yeah. So Pete Hegseth is the other author, co-author, and um, because everyone knows him from Fox, He's above your name on the book. Well, yes. And he's the, I don't know. He's the foil. I'm the foil and he's the. <laughs> there you go. He, he, he provoked the questions and had a lot to contribute in the way of culture and what's going on in our world. And he lives that every single day, you know, being on Fox uh, all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a good partnership. So what we thought we'd do is kind of go through what the book is arguing and then we'll talk a little bit more about the ACCS in particular and um, other things that might pop into my head. How's that sound? Sounds great. So um, what what happened to American education? Like, 
you talk in the book about there's a about paideia and that there's an American paideia and something went wrong. Explain that. Right. Well, perhaps the best way to be to, it would be to tell the story of how the book came about because Pete called me after meeting one of a, a family from a classical Christian school and um, he was talking about uh, some sort of an educational form that might be a good replacement for sort of a progressive education, but he didn't really understand why he was thinking contemporary progressive education like the last few decades. And, um, and so I said, well, you know, it's when they took Christ out of the schools that this started. And he said, yeah, 1960s. And I said, no, 1910, 1905, a in there. Yeah. And he was surprised by that. He didn't know the history. And so I had, uh, by some happenstance, researched the history of how the progressives and why the progressives sought to remove Christ from the school. And it was a lot more devious purpose right. than just because they wanted uh, some kind of sectarian neutrality, which is what they were claiming at the time. Right. We're a melting pot nation. You know, I put the air quotes on that. And as such, we have to uh, have a neutral education. That was sort of what they were they were, they were promoting. But I found out through some research that wasn't what they were doing. What were they doing? Well, they understood a concept called paideia, which we just talked about. I originally picked up on this in a uh, an essay that was written in the 1916 issue, uh, a 1916 issue of the New Republic, which was the uh, sort of flagship publication of the progressives and the progressive era. So for those who remember their history, progressive eras, re- roughly the first two decades of the 20th century. Yeah. So in this publication, the, there was a debate going back and forth, ironically, between both progressive factions who were trying to remove God from the school. And the debate was over a particular um, lab school that they had had success with in Gary, Indiana, and then they were trying to move it into New York City. But New York City, because of its diversity and what have you, had successfully marginalized or removed Christianity for the most part by that time anyways. And this was 1905, 1910, somewhere in there. So the debate was back and forth about what's the best way to get Christ out of school. And they used a word called plasticity, said we, we have no right to lock the plasticity of a child into place at, at a young age. And so I thought that's an interesting word. I want to read this whole article. And I went to the library to try and find it and to figure out what they were talking about. And that's when I discovered paideia. Okay. So what, what is paideia then? Paideia is an ancient concept. It, it actually is a name, a word that was given to the education of a child by the Greeks. And it was identified by the Greeks as so many things were as they sort of pondered what it meant to be a human. And when they looked at the tribes around them, they noticed that kids really adopted the vantage point and the affections and the loves, behaviors, mannerisms, pretty much everything that a kid became, came from the tribe that they were part of or the nation that they were part of in cases like the Persian Empire or what have you. And so as they observed this, they realized that all of these paideas, these ancient paideas, had one thing in common, which was that they, they were basically trained to be subservient to the divine leader, whoever that was, whether it was Xerxes, uh, Egyptian leader. We all know that those ancient civilizations like to create divine leaders. Yes. People were seen as God. And the reason for this was obvious to the Greeks. It was 
it was because that way they had um, unquestioning power or unquestioned right. power. Right. And so the Greeks thought, what would happen if we actually created an intentional paideia where the citizens could think for themselves, where they actually were able to assess and evaluate a, a promise or a delivery or a statement or a truth claim from someone else and assert, assess whether it was true or not. Because they thought if they could do that, they could actually create a democracy uh, where people yeah. voted uh, for the decisions of the government. Right. And so they invented classical Christian education. They actually invented the classical side of it, but they left a plug in for this thing that they called God. It was kind of at the center. Yeah. They called it the logos. Um, they didn't call it God, but sometimes Socrates would refer to God in the singular. So yeah. um, we kind of get that, that from them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Theos and theos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when... They figured out that they needed the center point. It was the Logos. And of course, then when we see John 1 come around and John, who's living in uh, Asia Minor area, says, uh, you know, among Greeks, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, Jesus is that Word. Mm -hmm. That Word that keeps coming up, Word in English, is Logos. And Logos is a very big word that means mm -hmm. a lot more than Word. It means essentially the mind of God. Yeah. And so that's what orbited classical education. And then the early part of the 20th era, early part, of, right after Christ in the first two centuries, it was Christianized because now we have something to put in there that's a man. It's not just a, uh, an idea of the mind of God. It's a, it's a guy, Jesus Christ. And so classical Christian education grew up after that and it formed the Western Christian paideia, which is what we talked about in the book. Yeah. And so this paideia, which... It, really shapes and cultivates the affections of students to love in the right order, those things which are good and hate in the right order, those things which are evil and stack that order so that they love in their souls, things like loyalty or courage or the virtues, essentially. Yeah. Um, that was the purpose of education and that was the full function of education. And it lasted that way for 2000 years. And when the progressives came on the scene, they realized that um, we were, you know, if you go back a little bit further, Marx is predicting, uh, Karl Marx, of course, is yeah. predicting that the, um, the, a revolution is going to be fomented by the people because they're going to overthrow this kind of, uh, oppression based upon wealth and it wasn't happening. Right. And so the progressives look at this and they go, well, that's because everybody's Christian and that's a problem. That paideia is a problem. It doesn't let us judge yes. things. It forces us to stay in the traditions of Christ. So we have to get rid of Christianity. And that's what I discovered. I, I, read a, I recently read an article about Jewish Marxist professor here in the United States who uh, started studying slavery and realized that it was not in the economic best interest to end slavery and that Christians did because of moral reasons. Right. right. So only, only time in history it's ever been done. The only and slavery has yes. been practiced for 10,000 And years. still is practiced mm -hmm. to, to this day in, in other non-Christian or areas. Uh, and this led to his conversion. Mm -hmm. Like, like that, mm -hmm. that there would yeah. be, um, that you can't just look at the world materialistic means and, you know, and they're, they're like killing their own sons to end slavery 
and it's not in their economic best interest to do so. Right. And it, and it just comes. It's in the name of justice. So in, in order for things to happen, to, to right the wrongs, you have to have a, an idea that there is a right wrong and a standard that comes from God. And we recognize, or we have recognized that this logos, this rational principle that orders our world, which is identified with Jesus, can be apprehended by human beings. And so even pagans can figure out what's right and wrong. But in a system that's still using a paideia without God, the thing that fills it then is just the power of those in charge. Right. Well, every paideia except the Western Christian paideia yes. has had that feature. It yeah. prepares citizens for servile for a servile life, right? Serving the government yeah. of of whatever place that they live. It's been the universal truth of man for thousands and thousands of years. And somehow we think that when the progressives come along and strip out the the one ingredient that was preserving our civilization, that we're going to be able to live just fine without it. Yeah. And it I sometimes I use the example for those who are movie buffs of what was the uh, Spielberg uh, dinosaur movie? Um, well, Jurassic, Jurassic yeah, Park, yeah. where they had this this one enzyme that they didn't allow the creatures to create, and therefore they couldn't multiply and keep going. It's that's what they were doing. If they took out the WCP, the Western Christian Paideia, then it, the Christian uh, the Christian worldview would die, right. and when it died, they could take and do whatever they wanted. The problem the progressives had was that American people had been classically educated in 1905, 1910. And so yeah. getting them to throw away virtue altogether was a non-starter. Yeah. So instead of doing that, they put a new thing in its place. We use the example in the book, Pete and I do, of the uh, spy movies where uh, there's a diamond or something on a pressure plate in a museum. And in order to steal it, they have to replace it with something equivalent, something that looks like the diamond and won't be noticed on the cameras and it's about the same weight as the diamond, but they swap it really quick. Right, right. And that's what they did with the American paideia. So yeah. uh, when we think of public schools, we think, oh yeah, the, the schools with flags flying in front of them and they have George Washington in the front of, uh, um, and they learn about the founding fathers and there's a picture of the constitution being signed on the other wall. And, and we say the pledge of allegiance and we sing this star spangled banner and all this stuff. That's what classical education, or I'm sorry, that's what progressive education, that's what American education is. Well, that was all interjected for the most part by the progressives between 1880 and about 1920. Right. And they even wrote the pledge of allegiance. It was called the Bellamy salute at the time. And this was caught uh, Pete Hegseth of Fox when I told him this, he what? Pledge of Allegiance, there's nothing more American than that. I said, no, that's why they wrote it. They wrote it to replace the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Because they couldn't have kids reciting a creed to Christ. They wanted them reciting a creed to the country. And so uh, Francis Bellamy is the guy who wrote it. It had an interesting salute that went along with it. You didn't put your hand over your heart. You put your hand in the air like the Nazis. Yeah. So in 1942, the uh, U.S. government pulled that out. And then, of course, Eisenhower added under God later. And that is our current Pledge of Allegiance. But other than that, uh, that was part of the progressive takeover because they wanted to replace on this pressure plate Christian paideia and the virtues that tied to it with American paideia and the virtues that they assigned to it and those of nationalism, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. 
man, they've done a really good job. Well, yeah, because <laughs> if if you do that, um, America is a great thing. Yes. But America is not God. No, no, it is not. <laughs> and it can't hold a, a candle to Christianity as a, as a, a place to sustain the virtues yes. of humanity. Yeah. So after about one generation, 40 years from say 1920 to 1960, the numbers magically work out. 1960, they pull God completely out of the schools, you know, yeah. prayer and any, any vestiges that still remained are, are pulled out. And now 40 years after that puts us at about the year 2000, so two generations. And yep. in that time period, they replaced the American Paideia. So they started taking down the flags and the, the quitting the, uh, right. the Pledge of Allegiance. And they put up in its place cultural Marxism. Yes. This whole, uh, whole other ethical system that has virtues that are pseudo-virtues. They aren't real. Right. But they uh, are explaining exactly why after the year 2000, you look out in the streets and you see, look at what young people are protesting. And you, we shake our heads as a little older generation and go, what? what they're, yeah. they're promoting Hamas yeah. in mass. Yeah. I mean, what, why that that's silly. Or, uh, they, they think that, um, uh, looting is a virtue. Right. Um, if the right people of the right color do it, right. It makes no sense. We can change our gender. I mean, nothing makes sense anymore because when you take that center piece out and at least the Greeks knew that they didn't know what the logos was, but they knew that they needed it. Yes. Now we don't think we need it yeah. because individuals are God. Yes. No, it's, it's crazy. I had a conversation with someone about, um, something they posted on Facebook which was a pro Hamas type of thing. And he basically told me that if you don't side with the oppressed, you're siding with the oppressor. Yeah. As if that was some sort of intellectual thing that was like a, like got you. And I, and I said, well, no, there's sometimes the people with power do good and the right thing. And sometimes people that don't have power, do very evil things such as murdering and raping and, you know, and, and we, but try to talk to them in terms of morality was like, um, he, he had no idea what to do with it because that's not how they've been taught. Like it's, if you, if you're the oppressed, you do no wrong. If you're the oppressor, you do no right. And it's the job to overturn. It's just Marxism. And it's, it, it's a, it's a crazy way to look at the world. And it, it doesn't seem to be going well. No, well, it's interesting you should bring out, I'll tell, tell you a little story. So <clears throat> prior to the book releasing, of course, I, I had never written a serious uh, book before. So if you call that serious, I don't know. Um, I was watching the New York Times list and watching the Amazon list before the thing released to see what kind of books were winning, you know, rising the list. And uh, one of the things that was an anomaly, if you look at Amazon's, their list is basically just sales. And the, of the hundred top books, uh, there's very, almost no, um, at the time anyways, there were no real classics in that list. They were mostly um, new books, new releases, the things you would expect. One that rose up to number six in the time I was watching was Orwell's 1984. Now, yeah. of course, this was in uh, right after the George Floyd incident and in that time period of that block right there. So, I'm tying this to what you just said about your friend and his categories of, of oppressor oppressed. Yeah. Orwell 
uh, somehow you and I probably read it in school, but I don't think they're reading that anymore because it's like a <laughs> narrative for our yeah, times, especially yeah. if you don't have time to read the whole book. Just go to the back. There's an appendices in it that, that he wrote called Newspeak, and it just describes yeah. what Newspeak is. And basically, it's the idea that these people create words and they pour meaning into them and they create categories. Yeah. And so if oppressor and, pre- and oppressed are turned into evil and good, and then you put a categorical uh, block around each of them. Now you've got a, a it's it's a judo hold yeah. on the mind. Yeah, people are forced to think in your categories, and if you're forced to think in oppressor oppressed categories, you will see the world yeah. as though everything is an oppressor oppressed thing. Now that replaces what good and evil. Yeah, right. Oppressor oppressed yeah. is a an individually. You know, it's for in, somebody who worships the individual. Yeah. Each individual is either oppressed or they're oppressing. Yep. If you're a Christian, you should be looking at good and evil. These yep. things are outside of us. They tie to the eternal. They tie to Christ and to God and the whole yeah, economy right. of Christendom. Right. And there, there's your fundamental difference between Christian education and secular education. One. Yeah makes categories around oppressor and oppressed and one on good and evil. So, so watching a documentary uh, recently about homelessness and, um, you know, that it, you hear things about it being, you know, it's homelessness or it's a mental health crisis or what have you. And it's, it's a lot of it's drugs and, you know, thing, things happening there. But, um, in the documentary, they were talking about, you know, it was San Francisco in particular and, and, like how wrong it was. There was some uh, in in it. There's a, a girl who was um, uh, who was bleeding and suffering, and they they called nine one one or something. They came and they treated her wound and then just left her in the street. And and the idea was, well, she has a right to be there. And and how dare you? demand you know any anything other than her right to remain there and and then you (laughs) everyone else in their mind is going what kind of sick and twisted society do we have that we would leave people in the street you know it turns the good samaritan on its head it does the story of the good samaritan it's wicked so they they have a a morality and it just weird. okay and i'm just gonna add one more thing to this so one of the things that I have been coming to realize, David, is this. The generation coming up through public schools, Gen Z, they eat, sleep, and drink it. They breathe it. It's on social media. It's everything. It's their paideia. It's their paideia. And they don't, they don't know any better, right? And so I've been trying to have discussions with young people. And I, I like it, I get very frustrated. And, uh, this is why my kids tell me I can't be on Twitter. I'd be really good at it. But, um, <laughs> the idea is though, they need, they're lost and they need help. And one of the things that I'm, I'm learning is, is that when I feel like I'm asserting just obvious truth, they don't believe it. I have to teach, I have to explain it's, I don't think everyone's lost while well, they're, I mean, they're lost. They're not hopeless. 
it just takes, it's just going to take a lot of work, you know? And, and I'm so thankful that we have classical Christian schools where, where kids are knowing truth. Rod Dreher in his book, uh, Live Not By Lies, he, he talks about how you can get to a point where you're trained not to believe what you see and hear. And, and so, you know, in, in the, in the Christian, classical Christian paideia, right, is, is the idea that the grammar stage is knowledge. Their kids are learning to know things and how to categorize them. And they use that with their, their senses, their five senses. Like they see it, make observations, and then there's a name that's given, you know, it's, it's our priesthood that we receive from Adam, right? This is what we do. We, we can see reality, we can give it a name, and we can categorize these things. This is knowledge. And, and what the whole current paideia of the public school system is, is, is not that at all. In fact, the more you can sit and learn from the screen, you can just sit and, and be told reality according to their Marx's premise. And it's just crazy. Yeah. Well, I've, I've seen this in my own kids. I mean, one of the things my youngest son likes to do is fact check me on it and things that I say, right? I was uh, talking to him the other day about uh, Charlemagne, uh, a figure from the 8th century, 9th century. And he Googles him and pulls up, you know, some 4,000 Saxons that he had, you know, forced converted or something. Yes. And so that point, that one single fact becomes his reality. The whole story of Charlemagne's life is lost. Oh my God. There's no narrative yeah. in which to contextualize the, the particular fact. They just get all these facts and they have no ability to say, wait, yeah. there might be a story behind this and the yeah. story might tell us the truth better than the facts yeah. do. A couple of things about that Charlemagne story. <laughs> Number one is the Saxons worldview is that their God was just overpowered by Christ. And when they were baptized, they remained loyal to Christ. Isn't that weird? Like, we don't think of it like that. Number two, Charlemagne brought Alcuin right. from York over. His response was in my telling him that story. He said, yeah, yeah but. <laughs> yeah. And then Alcuin told Charlemagne, you, you can't do that. Right. And so you know what Charlemagne did? He started spending money to send missionaries to yep. convert. Famously. Famously. And basically converted Germany. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's it's crazy. Yeah, but that's my point is yeah. the story is very biblical. It's very much the nature of the Bible, right? Yes. We read the Old Testament. There's not a good character in it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> They're all guys with flaws, but the overall working of the Lord and the Holy Spirit yes. moves towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that's what uh, you would see if you read the history yeah. of Charlemagne as opposed to the fact. A hit, and a hit piece. Or a hit a, piece. Yeah. Well, and, and nowadays, I mean, we are, we are in peril because all of, I, I tweeted, sorry, I, I tweet because my staff makes I me, know. I tweeted the other day, hey, buy up a, these old encyclopedias if you can, because uh, the history is changing underneath us. Because if you go to Wikipedia, suddenly there's a whole new, yeah. whole new narrative that was never part of historical uh, study and it tells a story they want to tell and we've got to try and be the next uh, Irish monks and hold on to Absolutely. books that everybody's throwing away because who needs a physical encyclopedia 
when you've got. Oh, when yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, you need it. So even so we have uh, at Providence Academy kids when they get into the uh, upper school, it's just logic and rhetoric. Um, they, they do have a period where they talk about how to use AI, you know, the right. chat, uh, GPT. And, and um, one of the things that we show them is that it's biased Be- because it's only using the information that it has been fed to. If that information has a particular leaning, that's what's going to come out. So it is, uh, in my doing research, because I use it all the time, but I, I in doing some research and, and I'm seeing the things that it's saying or warning me about, <laughs> like it'll give me warnings, like you shouldn't talk like th- or about this or something like that. And anyway, it's 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 a very uh, um, progressive leaning. How about if I give you a homework assignment for your next podcast? Yeah, what should that? What, what you should do is go pull a Socratic dialogue. I don't know the Euthyphro dialogue. Yeah, Amino, something like that. Yeah, and reconstruct it a little bit so that it works in modern day, and start asking Chat GPT those questions in the order that Socrates asked them, and see if you can box uh, the AI. Uh, into the same corners that Socrates boxes. That would be fun. Yeah, because I mean, the, the, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, Socrates and, and the gift we have from the Greek mind is that, you know, of course, his famous saying, all I know is that I know nothing. Yes. Right? Unlike ChatGPT, he was self-aware that all of that dialogue and all of that information that he kn- thinks he knows from looking at the world yeah. is not sufficient for right. him to know. Yeah. He can't understand with that. Yeah. And you you can only grow to to know that about yourself if you go through a Socratic dialogue. So yeah. it would be interesting would be interesting. for you to ask Chat GPT uh questions like, um, what does it mean to be just? And and work him into figuring out I'll, that without God you can have no justice. That would be fun to do. Like I've had I've I've um had him back down. I was asking questions about the 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 uh, white supremacy, like how many white supremacists are there, like what's how many identified. You could, of course, I could go to Southern Poverty Law Center and they'd say, well, there's about 10,000 10, 10, in a country of three hundred twenty million, and that's a big threat. Even if you put it at a ten to one, say there's for every one person in a white supremacist group, um. Multiply it by 10, 100,000. What is that? It's nothing. And then I asked about damages, like, you know, how much, what, are, what is the violence that white supremacists have done? And they name a few instances. I go, how, how can you, you monetize it? Those types of things. And then I, I said, um, uh, how about BLM? And then it warned me, like, not to ask such questions in a weird way. Like, basically that it's, you know, roundabout, and then it's like you know these are things, and you shouldn't you, you shouldn't be going down this trail. And I said I'm not making a judgment call. I'm asking for the amount of money that you know the damages were, and then it and then it answered my question. But I'd have to frame certain questions um, to chat GPT. Yeah, it just it's just it's just crazy. Well, and you know, I being a cynic, I am. I'm quite sure that their programmers have have put in some hard lo- hard coding. 
yeah. that prevents it from going in some places, which yeah. is why I think it would be entirely fascinating to see what it did with a true Socratic dialogue. Where it would be interesting. It's sneak, you sneak in the fact that there's a logical inconclu- uh, there are logical uh, defects in the way uh, modern people think. Yeah. And since chat GPT is a computer, should be logical. It should and be. And since it gets its information from the popular press, it will also be illogical. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. See how it would be. 